Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We're actually lucky to be joined by two guests this week, David Buckman and Andrea Levine-Saft. David is a managing director and head of family office resources for Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. And Andrea is also a managing director at Morgan Stanley. She co-heads the firm's wealth and estate planning strategists. David and Andrea, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So the subject of today's show is famous hotelier Conrad Hilton. You uh, may have heard of his great-granddaughter. Hilton was (laughs) born in what was then the New Mexico Territory in 1887. He got his start in hospitality, working in his family's general store in Socorro County, New Mexico, which was partially converted to also be a 10-room hotel. He uh, started as a banker, but fate dragged him back into the world of hospitality when in 1919... He came back to Texas at the height of the oil boom with the intention of buying a bank. Um, That purchase unexpectedly fell through, so Hilton just rolled with the punches and instead bought a 40-room hotel, the Mobley Hotel in Cisco, Texas. Over the next three decades, Hilton Hotels grew to become the largest hotel chain in the world. Um, During the 1950s and 60s, Hilton Hotels worldwide expansion is credited with facilitating both American tourism and overseas business by American corporations. It was the world's first international hotel chain, and it established a certain standard for hotel accommodations worldwide. Conrad passed with natural causes in 1979 at the age of 91. Um, He left the bulk of his estate to the Conrad and Hilton Foundation, which he established in 1944. Um, However, his son, Baron Hilton, who spent much of his career helping to build the Hilton Hotels Corporation, contested the will, despite having left the company years earlier. A settlement was eventually reached, and as a result, Baron Hilton received 4 million shares of the hotel enterprise. The Conrad Hilton Foundation received 3.5 million shares, and the remaining 6 million shares were placed in the W. Baron Hilton Charitable Remainder Unit Trust. On Baron Hilton's death, the unit trust assets would then be transferred to the Conrad Hilton Foundation. Now, Baron changed things a little bit. On his passing in 2019, he left 97% of his fortune and estimated at $2.36 billion, which is a shade over $3 billion in 2022 money, to the Charitable Unit Trust, and that would eventually be merged with the Conrad and Hilton Foundation, thereby doubling its endowment to about $6 billion. By leaving most of his estate to the foundation, Barron not only returned the portion of the family fortune that was intended to be donated 30 years earlier, assuming he not contested the will in the first place, but he also donated much of the fortune that he himself had amassed in the ensuing decades. So, Think of it as interest, I guess, on the, on the loan. Now, the story of a kid born to a backwater general store owner in the literal Wild West, eventually building an empire that touched every corner of the globe, is an inspiring one. 
However, despite basically being the platonic ideal of the American dream minus the, you know, the immigration part, it's important to remember that transition from modest means into great wealth can still be very challenging in, in numerous ways outside the simple challenge of amassing the massive fortune. Um, and that's where good advisors come in. So David, what makes planning for first-generation wealth creators so unique? Um, well, I think the, the most obvious difference between the new wealth creator and someone who's had wealth in the family for at least another generation before is that they don't have the precedent of dealing with these issues and dealing with advisors. And so they can often approach the planning with a more innovative attitude towards the, the techniques and the, the building blocks of a good plan. A lot of these people are also innovators themselves in general. And so that's been a part of their wealth creation story. And so they have both the advantage and the disadvantage of not having a family history of dealing with these structures, dealing with the, the issues that, uh, that come up uh, in planning. And so they can, they can be innovative and, and often press advisors on questions like, why are we doing it this way? Do we have to do it this way? And, and the like. And so I think that's, that's what makes them very interesting to work with, sometimes challenging in a good way, uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes challenging in just a challenging way. Um, but I think that that's, that's probably the biggest difference from the advisor's uh, perspective in terms, of, in terms of how they present uh, early, in the, uh, early in the relationship. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's uh, the idea of, um, you know, we've talked about first-generation wealth creators on this show before, but the, the idea of them never having wealth comes up, but this concept that you introduced of them not being used to advisors is something that we haven't really explored. Do you mind sort of expanding on, on the challenges and advantages of that? Yeah, I think if you, I'll, I'll, I'll paint it in sort of a stereotypical way. This is, this is exaggerated, but if you think about somebody who's grown up in a wealthy family and has a history, for example, of watching uh, his or her parents deal with wealth advisors, with attorneys, with accountants, and hearing the jargon and the language and the acronyms of estate planning and, and financial planning generally, uh, they, they show up uh, when the wealth comes to them with some biases about uh, those people and institutions and some preconceived notions, but they're, they're already in that system. They're in that ecosystem and they, they sort of tend to take it for granted more than somebody who may have been, as I said earlier, more innovative in how they created the wealth in the first place, may have done some disruptive, uh, you know, some disruptive work in their industry, and is more likely to say, "Well, I know that's how you're saying you do it, um, and that sounds interesting, but what are here's here's some ideas that I have. What's uh, what do you think about those?" Now, that's not everybody in that space. As I said, I'm sort of overgeneralizing. But you definitely do see more of that behavior and more of that attitude in that population. Well, don't worry about that. We're going to be doing a massive amount of overgeneralizing as we go forward. Here, so. <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> I would actually add that um, it, it also depends on the circumstances. So we, uh, the bulk of the clients who I meet with, I, I'm on the East Coast. If that you know has anything to do with it, are uh, first generation wealth creators who created businesses, businesses more of like the brick and mortar, you know, 
hands-on selling something or, you know, or creating some type of business that has customers and people coming in and buying goods and things you can touch. Um, They tend to spend their lives building up the business and we meet them at a stage where they have families of their own and they're thinking about planning and it's hard for them, you know, to give up control. It's hard for them to think about, um, parting with funds if we're talking about estate planning and gifting and they think about you know, kind of the, their more modest backgrounds they might feel even as wealthy as they are they might feel that they're nervous to give away too much because they can remember the days when they didn't have anything um, and then also they feel oftentimes like the struggle was what made them successful was what pushed them and they want to make sure that their kids can have that same experience. Although, you know, that's the, you know, that's the challenge, right? Uh, We want our kids to have everything, but we ask, yet we want them to be successful. And sometimes success means you shouldn't have everything. Um, So that's kind of that older generation who we deal with. But I would say if you're meeting the 20 to 30 year old, you know, tech entrepreneur who had multiple liquidity events and is, you know, very wealthy at a young age without a family, they tend to be thinking of, you know, what's the next thing? What's the, you know, what are the, what's the next best investment? What, what else is out there? What is, what is the next alternative investment? They tend to be, I think a little, you know, take more risk um, in that, you know, in investments and in, in, in their next steps. That's actually a really interesting dichotomy you just brought up there, Andrea, because, you know, I think a lot of times when we've had these discussions about sort of using specifically the term first generation wealth creator, it's a lot of times we're going to end up talking about, well, how do we get the founder out of the business? How do we actually get this passed on to the next generation because they're so attached to it? But they're, you know, not all first generation wealthy people are created equally. And so, you know, sometimes, like you said, there are these sort of, you know, tech entrepreneurs or whatever who have a massive liquidity event when they're young and they've only had a couple of years with that company. There's not the same level of attachment and they're a mover and a shaker and they want to move on to the next thing immediately. And that's sort of, you know, the same language, right? The same situation that we're talking about, but two very different sides of the coin. Um, How does that affect planning, you know, planning for one versus planning for the other? Oh, it's, it's really different. Um, so, you know, I spend most of my time doing uh, trust and estate type planning, but also we work very closely with the financial advisors and the financial plans. Um, but when we, when we do planning with, with kind of the first stereotypical person that I described, you know, somebody who built up a business and worked there for many years, um, I would say that generally my experience is that they are eager for their children to be involved if they want to be involved in the business. And they're also eager for their children to benefit from the wealth that they created, but very mindful of structure and structuring any inheritance or or gifting in a way that will not disincentivize the children to be successful on their own. And, and that, you know, that could probably be a whole podcast on its own, but, you know, very and, and cautious, uh, careful, thoughtful, really surrounding themselves with advisors, as David mentioned, as opposed to, you know, the, the meetings that I've had with kind of younger folks who tend to be very busy, you know, moving quickly, <laughs> um, you know, very smart and, and constantly on the go, you know, it's very hard to talk to, you know, a 27-year-old uh, person who doesn't have a, a spouse or a family to think about estate planning for the next generation. You know, it, it almost doesn't make sense. So we have to really 
tailor the conversation to who we're talking to. And it might be important to think about planning for parents or setting aside a nest egg for yourself or making sure you're insured properly or that you have um, cybersecurity, you know? So like the things that we'll talk about with those two types of clients that we described are going to be very, very different. I think David, if if I could also just amplify that to say, there's also often a very different approach to philanthropy. And so I think that the first, the first type of client that Andrew was describing will take what, what you probably would think of as a more traditional approach to philanthropy and to the involvement of, of the family in philanthropy. And it'll be, it'll be, it'll follow more traditional paths in terms of how, how it unfolds. Whereas the younger or newer uh, wealth creator will often be just as innovative and, and, and seeking to be a little bit more disruptive when it comes to philanthropy as well. And to the extent that they have not had that long experience of building the wealth and thinking about protecting the family and extending the wealth for multiple generations, sometimes the, their eyes can be pretty big on philanthropy uh, uh, as soon as they have the wealth. And that can make for some very interesting conversations and so within whatever family they do have um, and with whatever uh, causes they care about. And so I think that's that enters into the equation earlier and in a bigger way in a lot of cases, not in every case, but in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, philanthropy is a really interesting topic to explore here, right? I think you have sort of we're sort of comparing sort of the, the traditional sort of family foundation, sort of like the older, more stable way of doing it worth with something like the, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, sort of a new look at what is, you know, nominally charitable, but but not traditionally in a way. Um, I think this idea of younger clients, sort of more immediately first generation wealthy clients coming with more ideas and more uh, innovation is a very interesting one. I think if you ask most advisors, the stereotype would be that, you know, like they would think of like a lottery winner who is sort of coming in just like a babe in the woods and is just completely lost. But I guess that's where the sort of the personality type, the sort of type A alpha, um, you know, creator that it takes to be to, to have that liquidity event in the first place. Because that's what separates it from someone who just bought a lottery ticket and got lucky. A hundred percent. Yeah. I'm sorry to, sorry to talk over you, David. I'm just thinking of um, a couple of the clients who I sat with recently, younger, wealthy clients who built their own businesses, mostly in the tech space. And they come to me like with a laundry list of acronyms and, you know, my friends at this type of trust and I want to do a grad and an ink trust. And can you explain to me, like, they're very well prepared um, and they've done a lot of research on their own. Uh, you know, so it, it is very different than somebody kind of just walking up and saying like, wow, I just found this wealth. What do I do? I have no idea. I, I tend, I, in my experience, they're very prepared. Yeah. And, and, and I do think there's also that they have a, a greater tendency to discuss planning in their community of like-minded and similarly mm-hmm. situated people. Um, whereas mm-hmm. the, the first case that Andrea set out earlier, the the, the sort of longer haul uh, to create the wealth. They're a little, sometimes a little bit more, a little bit more private, a little bit more isolated. Um, and, and they'll look to advisors to say, you know, what, what makes sense? What are, what are, what do you, the advisors recommend? What do you see clients like me doing? Whereas the, the newer wealth, I, we have to come up with the exact word for it, but the, the faster or newer 
well, they're they're likely to come in with some a community of of friends that have done A, B, or C, and they're and they're thinking maybe we should do that too. And that that that's I think one of the challenges for advisors working with these folks is that they are in many ways as intentional and thoughtful uh, as anybody else um, about their planning. There's no question about it. They have a real, you know, they've been very intentional and thoughtful about it. And on the other hand, there's, um, there's a, a tendency to, to, to move quickly and, and want to do as much as possible very quickly. When, as Andrew was saying earlier, sometimes the best thing to do is pause on at least some of the issues and let, let time sort of sort some of the issues out. That's really interesting because, you know, a big part of an advisor's job is sort of keeping the client under control and, I mean, and, and saying no without saying no. But it's interesting to compare that idea of trying to rein in, I guess, for lack of a better terms, sort of the clients on the opposite ends of the spectrum. And obviously, there are people all along the spectrum. It's not just sort of older and younger and, you know, built mm-hmm. and, and, and with Lurie event. Those are just sort of helpful markers for us right now. But sort of, you know, when you're trying to... When, you know, sort of a, an older business owner, older business builder with a business as part of the family comes to you with, with an idea that's maybe not so great and you have to tell them no. You know, they're just not used to ever hearing no because they're such a force of personality. <laughs> yeah. That sort of force these things into being. And then you have a younger person who's heard no a million times, but they're still not going to listen to you say no because they've just always mm-hmm. found a way to work around it. Yeah, I think, I think the best way to look at it is not so much reining in as, as it is sort of helping them focus, um, <clears> you know, and 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 pick from the various things that they've been exposed to and that they come in with some ideas about and, and sort of get organized and focused, uh, which they you know, gen- generally appreciate, right? That's, that's why they're coming is to say, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've heard a lot, I've seen a lot, but what's the best thing for me right now? And um, I don't know, Andrew, if you, if you agree that mm-hmm. from the ones that we've, when we've worked on situations together, it does seem... Mm-hmm as though uh, there's a difference between the client who comes in looking with a blank slate versus the client who comes in trying to sort through and organize a a variety of ideas. Yeah. I mean, it's almost easier with the blank slate client because we, you know, we can help create that, that framework. Um, I often with the client who's done a lot of the research, that's where I have to start, you know, explaining things and um, saying, I, I understand what you read on the internet, but it actually works this way. And, and it, and it does X, Y, Z. And, you know, so you have to kind of talk them out of the things that they heard or read, or, you know, talk to somebody at, about at the cocktail party, you know, I mean, obviously neither is better or worse. Um, it's always good to be prepared, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I think that having a team of advisors around you as the client is going to be the most important. And often, you know, financial advisors kind of serve as the quarterback uh, of the team, but, you know, having a financial advisor, a lawyer, an accountant who are working seamlessly together, I I think that that is going to always come out best for the client, whether they're blank slate or starting with, you know, a laundry list of acronyms. Andrew, do you mind expanding on sort of what are the major points of failure in sort of a typical plan for, for sort of a first generation wealth creator when you're looking at building yeah. a plan? Like what are the, mm-hmm. the common cracks where you're like, let's get first things first, let's get A, B, and C covered up, and then we can start with the like actual specifics of this person's you know, situation? Yeah. 
I'd say the biggest failure is how is doing nothing. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, just in listening to your podcasts, you have multiple episodes of so-and-so who actually had no plan and, and their estate passed, you know, pursuant to state law and it was a big mess. So doing nothing is, I think, the biggest failure. Um, doing something and then letting it sit for 20 years, again, not, you know, definitely not a good result. Um, For business owners specifically, I would say um, not having a good succession plan in place, especially, you know, two scenarios come to mind. One is you have partners, you know, eventually somebody's going to pass away. What happens? Where, where, you know, does the family become the next partner? Is there a buyout provision? Is there insurance to provide liquidity? Um, so all of those things, I've seen so many clients who come and you say, well, what's your plan? Is there a clause about what happens at death? And they say no. Um, and then the other scenario is it's a family business, you know, they, mom and dad created it. And now they're coming up with a plan and there's three kids and only one works in the business. You know, how do you, you know, if you haven't, then you, you know, the, I guess the mistake is I leave everything in equal shares to my children, right? That I don't think that that really serves the business well. Let's be, let's right? be you fair, know? right? Right, right. <laughs> but then, but then you've got, you know, one who's putting in there a sweat equity, you've got somebody who might want more liquidity, and that's not really a well thought out plan. So I think those two things come to mind. Um, you know, for and then if you know, for the younger generation, planning can be very important and tax efficient. And again, I'm putting on my my tax efficiency hat, because that's the, the, the world that I live in. But there are a lot of techniques that can be employed to set up wealth, you know, that that is more tax efficient from a gift and estate tax perspective, sometimes from an income tax perspective. And, you know, some and often clients come to us when it's too late, right? We, we like to meet people at inception. Um, and so not thinking about things early enough, I would, I would say is the, is the other kind of potential failure. Yeah, it's really important to think of, uh, you know, a lot of people can fall into the trap of looking at the sort of various exemptions and um, sort of tax brackets and such as limiters um, when really they're mm-hmm. tools uh, that are meant to be mm-hmm. used and how you use them, you know, giving yourself a longer runway or longer time period to best make use of them is obviously smarter than just looking at, oh, these are the limiters that are on, you know, okay, I'll just pay tax when they tell me to. It's like, well, no, sometimes when you pay tax, when you decide to, you can really do a big deal. That's a great way to think of it. So David, you know, you mentioned, uh, I think Andrew actually mentioned, um, you know, the, the need for sort of synergy between professionals, right? For, you know, once you get to a certain wealth level, you know, just one advisor is just not really realistically going to be able to do it no matter how good they are. You know, you need to have a team of professionals, CPAs, attorneys, you know, wealth managers. And that sort of eventually, I guess, the idea is to coalesce into the sort of the family office structure. Um, when does that happen? There's always a question I get from people. When, what is the transition? You know, when, do you, when does a family know that they're sort of ready to think about you know, going into the family office structure or you know, is there a hard and fast rule? I know you're probably going to tell me if you've seen one family office, you've seen one family office because that's what everyone <laughs> says. But you know, sort of this idea of like, what's that dividing line where you start thinking about like, hey, maybe you need to take this next step into you know, the, the, get the family office resources that are available to you. Yeah, I, I do think it is different for every family, but there are some there are some observations, right? I mean, you you do want the coordination among your advisors from the beginning, 
Um, it's, uh, I think, to add to the list of, uh, of pitfalls that, that we were talking about a minute ago, communication uh, and in, you know, incomplete communication is probably the biggest problem. So that means not just a failure to communicate with the spouse, with the children, but with the advisors um, and to have the advisors communicate with each other even well, well before you're at the stage of creating a family office, because there's nothing more inefficient than having a great investment plan, a great philanthropic plan, a great estate plan, and having none of those plans talk to each other, so to speak, and, and having, having them not coordinated with each other. You just lose a lot of efficiencies um, by doing that. And that requires that the advisors speak to each other. And so I think the biggest, the biggest question with respect to moving from having your advisors coordinated with each other. And often the financial advisor is the, is the, the quarterback and I think has the best perspective on, on, the, on the family situation and can be the person who coordinates the attorneys and the accountants and the insurance professionals and the like. But the, the, the time that you want to move from that to having a family office it really has to do with what do you want to insource? You know, at what point do you have enough size in terms of the assets, enough complexity in terms of the entities that you've created, enough family members and different structures, whether it's trusts or foundations or the like, that it it's best to have at least some structure inside the family, inside your circle as the client, um, to coordinate all of that. And, and then you can decide, you know, what you want to, what you want to do within the, the confines of the family office and what, and what you want to continue to have uh, professionals do outside. And, um, and that does depend more than anything on what your succession plan is. So if you are a wealth creator and there's nobody else in your family who has an interest or, or a capacity uh, to do that work, um, and it's getting complex, um, and it needs, it needs some detailed attention, you may need to build some structure uh, within your own office, so to speak, to, to provide for that succession. And, and that's, I think, the key variable is when when is the size and complexity enough that I, um, you know, have to have to think about what happens when I'm not the one to be handling this anymore? And I think a lot of times that's the hardest question to even get them to start thinking about, right? With certain family business owners, that the idea that that the business is going to exist without them is just beyond their comprehension. Yeah, and 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 oftentimes it's a spouse or the children or the advisors who are the ones who have to you know provoke that question and and uh, doing that delicately um, and thoughtfully is important, but it, it's it's a huge step and it's it's wonderful to see that client that wealth creator who who's who's aware of that issue himself or herself and raises it by themselves, but often it, it takes a lot of prompting. So, Andrew, you know, we've uh, mentioned a couple of times this idea of succession planning and sort of preparing either the next generation or the next uh, you know, whoever's going to take over the business. Obviously, we could do a whole separate podcast on that. We could do 10 whole separate podcasts on that. Mm -hmm. um, but sort of in, in, in broad strokes, sort of what's the advisor's role and what sort of techniques can the advisor use to sort of just get the succession ball rolling? 
you know, if someone comes to you and they've got no succession plan in place at all, sort of how do you start yeah. pushing that ball down the hill, just to, even just getting it moving? I think just asking the question, obviously, is going to be the most important. I mean, when we sit down with clients when, and, and our financial advisors who we work with sit down with clients for the first time or second time, it's really just pure discovery, right? What's and, and it's really not just tell me what's on your balance sheet, give me your documents. It's what's important to you? What is What are your goals? What is it that you want to see happen? And then we kind of back into the plan and the planning. Um, so discovery is huge. Um, and then, you know, getting a little technical, getting your hands on um, formation documents, governing documents, and any trusted estate planning that's been done. You know, we're lucky enough that we're the family office resources group that David runs and I'm a part of. Um, and we service our financial advisors for ultra high net worth clients. So they bring us in um, and they say, you know, Hey, you know, this is the bringing one of my experts who talks about succession, who talks about estate planning, so that they can help uncover what, what we need to do. So I think just raising the issues, asking the questions, and listening. Listening is so important. Listening to the client as to what the client's goals are and what their values are. And then trying to kind of, like I said, you know, reverse engineer to make sure that the structure is in place to, to achieve that. That's about all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank our guests, David Bachman and uh, Andrea Levine-Sam for, for being just great guests and for um, being great sports and sort of taking on what have been sort of extremely broad and complex topics and, and doing a good job of trying to squeeze them into sort of a 25-minute general podcast. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And for our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.